0: Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. This is a special edition of Office Hours. We're cross-posting the first interview from the all-new Context Podcast. In this interview, Jessica Streeter speaks with Henry Brownstein and Timothy Mulcahy, co-authors of the winter 2012 Context feature Home Cooking, Marketing Meth. If you like Office Hours, you probably already love Context Magazine. And now you've got another great podcast to subscribe to with the Context Podcast. So head over to Context.org to subscribe. And while you're there, check out the brand new 2012 issue of Context as well. But first, listen up for an insightful interview about the culture and economics of meth.
1: So first of all, again, thank you both for agreeing to talk to me. Uh, so, I wanted to start off by talking about your article, uh, Home Cooking Marketing Meth, that appeared in the Winter 2012 issue of Contexts. So, you argue that um, markets and social networks surrounding methamphetamine production and consumption uh, are really unique compared to other drugs. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that?
2: Yes. Uh, we spent four years studying methamphetamine markets all over the country, and we did a mixed method study starting with a survey of 1,367 police departments around the country. And the real purpose was to get to areas where we could talk to people about local markets and find out how the markets work. We were interested in understanding the dynamics of markets from the perspective of the people who participate in them and the people whose lives are affected by them. So we started with the survey and then went to uh, identify, doing an analysis of the data from the survey, we identified 50 police departments that seemed to have different things going on that were of interest, uh, given our concern for how the markets were operated, how they were organized. And we did telephone interviews, and and at some point Tim can talk about the technology we use for those interviews. Uh, And we spoke to people who are knowledgeable of the local markets in each of these 50 areas. And then from that, we had originally planned to visit nine spaces, nine different towns or cities, where there were markets, to look at the different kinds of markets there were, uh, what happened was we realized that that would not make sense. We needed to really look at it from a regional perspective, if not a national perspective. So we selected five regions, the Southwest, the Southeast, the Mid-Atlantic, the, the Northwest, the Pacific Northwest, and the Midwest. And we visited each of those regions and went to, we, we selected 28 places to start, in. in each location we went to that place and then visited areas around it We talked to people who were involved in the markets, users, dealers, police, treatment providers, uh, prevention workers, family service providers, social service providers, all all sorts of folks. Anybody who knew about the markets was involved. So the point is that we started asking questions about how the markets were organized and how they operated. And Tim and I have both been involved in doing drug research and studying drug markets for years. And I, I started doing this work back in the 80s when crack was a big deal. And we... At that time, we were involved in looking at the relationship between crack and violence and discovered the importance of understanding how the markets work in order to understand the violence of those markets. The interesting thing about crack was that you could walk up to a stranger on a street corner and, and buy crack, you could buy the drug. Uh, and heroin worked like that. Most, most street drugs worked like that. Uh, later on, we began to see drugs being sold in more semi social settings, clubs, and so on. The interesting thing about meth, and to get back to your original question, is that what we found was that meth is really personal. Uh, we, as we spoke to people in each of these communities, we began to realize that the only way to get meth is to know somebody. So we start, starting with our, our, our telephone interviews, we began asking that question. We said, if I were to come to your community and I wanted to buy methamphetamine, where would I go? And the answer was almost always the same, you can't you have to know somebody in, in the article that you mentioned the context article we talk about someone who said to us you might find some idiot who would sell it to you at a bar that's not likely so it's something that's really So we began to look at the different kinds of meth markets more closely and we looked at the the well we can talk if you like about the the changes that took place in the last fifteen or twenty years given legislation and policy changes and changes in practice but. Methamphetamine was, and to some extent, is still sold through local mom-and-pop-type small businesses.
1: Why do you think that difference exists, whereas other drugs, you have that sort of just find a stranger on the street and you can purchase it, where meth, for some reason, is so personal? Why do you think that is?
2: Somebody said to us, and this really struck us, meth is a family drug. And talking to people around the country, we found that, in fact, we didn't know what that meant. We had to ask people about that. So we were told in one place, for example, that in a family service agency on the West Coast, that they're dealing with third generation now. It's something that stays in the family. It's something that people use together. It's also the way it was produced originally in these local mom-and-pop type labs. A lot of it was people who gathered around someone who would cook for them. And you had to wait. You had to know the person you were dealing with. It became a matter of trust. As things changed and the Mexican cartels began to provide methamphetamine in areas where the labs have been shut down by legislation involving pseudoephedrine, you know, you can't buy unless or any cold medicine unless you it over the counter. When all that changed and the, the Mexican cartels started to export and, and the small towns began to import methamphetamine, even then it was difficult for them at that point to find a way for people to, to find context that they would need to sell at the retail level. So they had to work with local people who knew people so that people would trust each other. So it may be just the history, the culture of it. It may be the kind of drug. It's also a difference in the sense that with cocaine, for example, when you use cocaine, you get high very fast and you come down very fast. And you need to keep going back and making the next sell. With methamphetamine, when you get high, you stay high for a long time. So you don't need, you can just sort of sit down and relax. It's, you don't need to go out and find somebody else to get it for you. You can make the purchase, have it, and it will last for a while. So it's hard to say exactly why that is, but talking to the folks we spoke to all over the country really seemed that it really was about the, way, the culture of it, the way, the way it had been established. And over time, it became more and more difficult for people to, uh, to change the way they would do things. So that they, that It really involved trust. It involved knowing people.
1: Um, now, to go back to one point you made about how even when the Mexican cartels came in, uh, they still sort of needed that personal connection to the community. Now you mentioned uh, briefly in the Context article that some of that um, was racial. The fact that white guys kind of wanted to buy this from other white guys and didn't trust um, sort of Mexican outsiders coming into their community. Uh, is that something that you sort of found across the board or were there other reasons that Mexicans needed that um, sort of personal link?
2: i don't know that it was so much racial as it was stranger okay these were people that they know and they were not comfortable with uh they had been buying from their neighbors from their friends and now strangers are coming they weren't prepared to buy from them so the change was really just just be able to say let's let's work with the people in the community so it was almost like setting up franchises and tim might be able to tell you more about because he was heavily involved in the work we did in in, in uh the southeastern the mid-atlantic part of the country where a lot of that happened
3: Yeah, I think one of the major uh, juxtapositions I'd have of the southeast mid-Atlantic region versus the, say, southwest region in terms of this uh, delivery from uh, a Mexican to a white guy or a white guy feeling whether or not he wants to uh, uh, feel comfortable buying from uh, a a, a, a Hispanic uh, drug cartel is that in the Mid-Atlantic and the Southeast, there's been, uh, it's much harder for both sides to be able to deal with each other. The, the, the locals don't trust the outsiders and the, the drug cartel folks um, want to be as far removed from the potential of them being identified from police as they can. So you find the Hispanics coming into rural areas of say North Carolina or Virginia and and literally towns of three, four, five thousand people and the um, socio-demographics of that region over a five, six, ten year uh, uh, range dramatically changes in the sense that there's a, a lot uh, more of a sort of a Hispanic uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, community expanding. Um, the Hispanics, uh, uh, Mexican um, cartels move into these areas because they're now able to move around and, and, and not sort of stick out. And at the same time, um, you have very limited local law enforcement uh, on the issue because there's just simply not that many law enforcement um, uh, representatives in that area, and and then you have the next level of that, which is um, uh, the, the the sort of drug cartels being very clever and businesslike about their approach, and so what they essentially do is the the irony is that we found very little in terms of competition between um, uh, you know, one drug dealer and another drug dealer or drug dealer on drug buyer. What we found was competition among the Hispanic, uh, Mexican cartels trying to identify locals who were already in this uh, methamphetamine business and they were looking for a trusted, and I'll put that in quotation marks, white guy in the neighborhood, that they could say, look, I've got a much better, much purer product that you can now take and and start distributing widely. And what they would do is, um, quote-unquote, front the uh, methamphetamine product to these local white guys who they have no relationship with at all, and yet they're able to give them ounces to pounds worth of this methamphetamine product for free to go out and then market And so that becomes the way that the the cartels really work up their business. They find trusted white guys in the rural community and they have them horizontally build out and they build them out. They they essentially take those uh, were small time uh, local meth dealers and they build them into uh, bigger, larger uh, dealers that work specifically for the cartels. You juxtapose that now to the, the Pacific Southwest. Where this has been going on, as I say, methamphetamine both at the local level and the, and the imported Mexican level has been going on for 20, 25 years. Um, there's, there's not this interesting uh, uh, back and forth between white guy user and Hispanic dealer um, in the Pacific Southwest there is there's none of that phenomenon of of trying to find the the, the trusted white guy to to move this through they they have a, no no need to do that because there's not as much of the sort of sticking out like a sore thumb uh mentality that there is in these emerging markets in the southeast and the in the mid-atlantic
1: now i had one question regarding the methodology so if my understanding is correct, from the NORC website, it was sort of a three-phase study. And as you mentioned before, you sort of started off talking to law enforcement and police officers and those types of organizations. Did you find that starting off with those type of contacts made it more difficult for you to find meth users and meth dealers who are willing to talk to you?
2: Actually, it made it easier. Really? Uh, yeah, because... You know, you can't just walk into a community and start knocking on doors and say, do you use meth? Can you talk to us? (laughs) You have to have somebody who will give you access. So we thought about that in the beginning. And again, we were interested in getting the people to talk to because we wanted the participant perspective. We wanted the perspective from the people involved. And we knew that we thought about who we could go to first. The thing about police is that they have a responsibility in their community. And in every community, they are an organization that has the responsibility to know about these markets because it's criminal activity so whatever they know who they know they also have a responsibility to know who some of the people are who are involved remember one place somebody said to us you drive by the car wash and the guy's waving at you are the meth dealers and you know it and they know it but there's nothing you can do about it so they know what's going on so we, need, we thought that would be the place to start and then from them we could work our way in so when we got By the time we showed up in a community, we had very good relationships with the local police because we had already done the survey, we had spoken to them on the phone, and we had done some very interesting things with them on the phone so that we got to know them pretty well. And then when we showed up, we told them what we were interested in and they had made contacts for us. And they started, and we used sort of a, a snowball sample in a sense because once they introduced us to people, we were able to keep going. So we met through them. We were able to find out who to talk to. They also sort to of point us in directions, even if they didn't know people. They also had informants, who were users and dealers, and they were often the first people we spoke to, because they were someone who, who, who felt that, you know, they were they they were someone that the police knew about who was involved. They already had made some arrangements, and so they knew they were not going to get in trouble anymore. And the police would set up a meeting for us somewhere, usually someplace where they. Wouldn't be wouldn't be seen, and we would talk to different folks. Uh, sometimes we went into jails and met with people. It really depended, but the police opened the door for us. And we then, when we got to a community, we also met with treatment providers, as I said, family service providers, social workers, other people in the community. Because as we got there, we would start talking to people. So one time we were in a, in a police department, and we sat down, we had a scheduled an hour for an interview. Three hours later, they still wanted to talk, but we wanted to move on. So they introduced us to somebody in the border patrol who then took us to his truck and drove us along the border. So each time we, they, they would open a door and from them we would get to meet other people. Or they would show us neighborhoods we could go to where we could meet people because they knew what was going on. So they actually turned out to be a very good source for us because they knew they knew some people immediately, they were informants, and they knew where we should look.
1: That's really interesting because um, I remember reading about those methods and kind of wondering if that impacted... Your, your actual study at all. So it's interesting to hear that it actually benefited you. Uh, so just sort of more broadly, stepping away um, from the specific study, how did you two just sort of get started in studying meth in the first place?
2: Well, as I said, Tim and I each have worked over the years, and we've known each other for a while. We've working together for a while, but we've each started out separately, and we're interested in some of these same issues. And uh, as I said, I had been studying crack cocaine markets going back into the 80s, and became interested in methamphetamine. Uh, I worked at the National Institute of Justice for a few years and had a program called Arrested Drug Abuse Monitoring that involved doing interviews and collecting urine samples from arrestees in 35 counties around the country. And methamphetamine was always very interesting because it was one of those drugs that, that stuck where it was and it didn't move. It, it, was, it was a very high prevalence among uh, the arrestees that were tested. On the West Coast, and particularly Hawaii and the Pacific Coast, and almost nothing at all in the East, and there were all sorts of questions about why that was going on. So, and I was always interested in the dynamics of, of drug markets, yeah. from a qualitative perspective, from the perspective of the people involved. I was always interested in the organization and operation of markets, and how they relate to issues of public safety, public health, uh, and so on. So, uh, meth always seemed different, and I couldn't figure out why. So when nida and this study has been funded by of drug abuse when nida came out with a solicitation to study uh drug markets i thought well this would be a good opportunity we and tim and i were working together we submitted the proposal got the funding and started doing this work and the work stretched out it was a three-year grant that lasted four because we really got interested and we we're still doing things we we're still writing uh, things like this because it's something that really interested us and we're still trying to figure it out uh you know the nice thing about science is. There are no answers, only more questions. <laughs> and this study really has a lot of questions that have been opened up to us. So I started out myself looking at crack markets and trying to understand why crack markets were so violent. And from that, began to look at other drugs and other kinds of market, Worked with other people in other areas. But came to this point, the methamphetamine right now is a really interesting market because it is expanding. But what we're seeing is it's a thriving industry in this country. There have been attempts to shut down the industry but in fact, it just evolved. And that's something that even the people we've met with told us that every time we try to do something to solve the problem or to address the problem, the people, the other people on the other side who are trying to build the industry do something else. It's always a back and forth. It's like any other business. You know, they, they know there's a market there. There are lots of meth users in this country and somebody got to supply them. And you know, if it's not going to be a local pharmacist, it's going to be somebody. So a lot of things happened over the past couple of years. So, and, you know, and for Tim, i sure there's been a similar path in terms of uh, work that he had done years ago that led us to this point where this just being a very natural kind of a, a set of questions for us to ask. And meth markets are an interesting place to look to answer questions about how these organizations operate.
3: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the main uh, interest for me was uh, just whether or not this was even a problem. We've been hearing for eight or 10 years that, that this big meth epidemic was coming and we weren't seeing it. Um, and then we kept hearing about, you know, these sort of anecdotal stories that it just doesn't cross the Mississippi Uh You know, there was very little, if any, use in the the Northeast. There was very little, if any, use in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, very little in Philadelphia, very little in Chicago. You know, why was this? We just we wanted to understand why this was going on and and what was the issue. Um, And I think what Henry said early on really gets to why there were all of these uh, conundrums, because you can't look at methamphetamine or the epidemic therein as a national Perspective. It absolutely has to be broken down by region and by time, because this this began in uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, for, for the for the national landscape in Hawaii, and then made itself to uh, California, and then sort of incubated in California for a good long time, permeated then to the northwest and southwest. Um, And really, you know, took on, uh, you know, it was on its second generation, if you will, of epidemic before it even crossed the Mississippi. And that's really, I think, why there's been all this back and forth about is this even something we should be studying? Um, The fact is, um, it's a matter of what day it is and what year it is, and then getting a sense of whether or not the, you know, variables that are in play are going to impact your community or not. Um, I'll give you, you know, an example here that, the phenomenon isn't just about methamphetamine use, it's about breaking down what we even mean by meth. There's the mom and pop, you know, uh, sort of, uh, what do I want to call it, peanut butter, low uh, purity, what they call crank methamphetamine, um, which is, you know, used for small drug clubs, if you will. It's not a big uh, marketing tool. Whereas the Mexican methamphetamine, the ice component when it came up, was hugely marketable. Um, and you watch that sort of uh, like a like a snowstorm kind of uh, make its way across various parts of the United States. Um, and now what you have is this uh, legislation that comes in both at the state and the federal level saying we're going to control this substance, uh, the pseudo-fed, the, the precursor elements to make the good methamphetamine, the D-meth. Um, And like Henry said, you see learning back and forth between communities of of local cooks and the Mexican DTOs who want to take advantage of this. So the DTOs literally were on their heels waiting state by state, legislator by legislator, to to recognize when this product was gonna be controlled. And the moment that it was controlled, they were able to jump into the community, front the product or make the product available at a very cheap price, but very pure, get people sort of hooked onto their product and then move on to the next community. Um, so you can't talk about meth in general in the national landscape. You have to say, well, if I'm interested in how meth is, is working in Atlanta, this is what I need to be thinking about. If I'm thinking about it um, in you know rural Virginia, this is how I need to think about it. Meaning, you know, they didn't have any of this uh, crystal meth uh before say 1993-92 and then you see the precursor versus the legislation changing and overnight you go from an area that's completely local mom and pop to completely mexican methamphetamine ice product
1: are there still regions of the country that are predominantly mom and pop
3: that's a great question yeah i mean this is my biggest focus right now and i'm hoping henry's too um the 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 Midwest, um, if you take sort of a, a rectangle from, say, St. Louis to Indianapolis and, and draw a rectangle that goes to, you know, rural uh, uh, western and central Illinois, that whole region has been, for some reason or another, completely isolated from the, the ice phenomenon. It's um, what we're calling a one-pot shake-and-bake uh area um they've taken this new method for taking you know a a, a two liter bottle and taking the ice packs from the walmart and taking your ether and taking all your other products and putting it in the bottle and gassing it off quickly in 30 minutes now you can make enough pretty decent meth to get six eight people high for a full day and what you're finding i think in the midwest is that there's just there's been no ability for these Mexican DTOs to penetrate that market because they're already saturated. They're able to make their own product, and it's just impenetrable. You can also compare that to say Philadelphia, Chicago, and more recently Washington D.C., which Henry and I have some. Um, uh, experience with we've met with the Metropolitan Police Department uh, at an expert panel several weeks ago, a couple months ago actually, and they gave us some examples, some real examples of of why it's been very difficult for the DTOs to break into the Washington D.C. Um, drug market. Um, for and instance, can you,
1: can you just define DTO for the listeners?
3: Uh, uh, drug trafficking organization. Okay. So. Um, they're very businesslike. They're very strategic. They uh, are very forward-thinking, and they're proactive in their business, uh, marketing, uh, and and yet they're having an impossible time trying to break into certain markets. You know, Henry can tell you, um, in, in meth- if I were a meth dealer, I would think I'd want to go to D.C. because it's, you know, quite frankly. <laughs> A great place to sell drugs because there's an awful a, a lot of demand there for it. There's an awful lot of user base. Um, and yet they haven't been able to, to to penetrate. Why is that? Well, I don't know exactly why, but I can tell you that they fronted, um, you know, literally pounds and pounds and pounds and pounds of this, uh, the, 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 the most pure product they had, to undercover detectives in the Washington Metropolitan Police Department who weren't even looking for masks. They were just looking for some cocaine, and lo and behold, these guys give them a ton of methamphetamine and say, can you go move this product in D.C.? Um, again, anecdotally, we find from the detectives we talked to in the D.C. metropolitan area and PG County and Maryland that it was just hard for them to actually get that pure product to market. Um, this and- is one of the
2: and- interesting things about meth, that it's really, you have to think about it on a broader scale than they do a lot of other drugs. I remember with crack cocaine, a lot of the competition was between dealers in the same neighborhood or sometimes even, I remember the same stoop, the same steps and, and on the street. But with methamphetamine, if you think about the legislation that puts pseudoephedrine behind the counter, the response was, there were actually two different responses. One was for the Mexican cartels to see an opportunity to import another drug to add to their inventory. they were already importing heroin, cocaine, marijuana, methamphetamine made a lot of sense it was a lot easier to transport in some ways than others uh and they were able to come up with different ways of doing that on the other hand another response was well if i can't get if i can't walk into a, a store and buy enough suit of bedroom to open my own lab maybe i can get a bunch of friends who can each get the smaller amount that is available and then they come back to my place and we have so smurfing was invented and i'm not sure why they call it smurfing <laughs> because of the blue pills I thought it was a little blue people, but whatever it was. Smurfing means that you get a bunch of people to go to different places. And in fact, it was it started by the local mom and pop organization. They send a bunch of friends out. They bring back enough stuff. And then they would do what Tim was called a shake and bake, the one pot where you put all the chemicals into a, uh, a, a a two liter bottle, a soda bottle, or pop bottle. And in fact, you can. the instructions are online. You can go online and see YouTube and how to do this. Just be very careful, because they do explode can be dangerous. So it's not something you want to play around with. It's not something you do at home by yourself. But people are good at this, and a lot of people think they are good at this. We met somebody in jail once who had blown himself up trying, but he thought he was good, but he wasn't that good. But the point is that Smurfing allowed these small mom-and-pop shops to stay in business, because they could get enough of the chemicals to make enough for the small group, there's club, clubs, we think of them as social clubs. Your friends and family and acquaintances get together. On the other hand, The Mexican cartels are are really good business people and they understood this also. They do smurfing as well, but on a larger scale.
1: All right, so I know we're running out of time. Uh, There's there's one last question I want to ask you guys. So meth certainly isn't the only drug out there. Um, it's arguable as to whether it's even the most widely used, especially, as you mentioned, in in regions along the East Coast. But it certainly seems to be the drug that's really captured the media attention. So you see a number of documentaries on it. You see talk of meth being the current large epidemic. Uh, you see Redling's book, Methland, uh, shows like Breaking Bad. What do you think it is about meth that just captures our our interests so much?
2: Well, you know, speaking as a sociologist, I think it's important to understand that these things are not that simple. It's not really about what the evidence shows. It's about the way that people view things. It could be some specific phenomenon that takes place that gets people thinking about something. It could be because people are frightened by something. It could be a moral panic. There are a lot of things that could explain it. So if you look at crack cocaine, for example, it never was as widespread as you would have thought. Based on all of the attention it got, I remember looking at uh, innocent bystander killings related to crack cocaine and looking at data and finding that there really were almost none. But it was the biggest story in the media. The myth is an interesting story because it involves personal communities, it involves, it involves families, it involves personal health problems that are very obvious. There are a lot of things that, you know, we, we met a lot of people who have their teeth. Meth users. And if you read the media, that would be a surprise because you would think none of them have teeth. You know, they're all, and in fact, you know, there are a problems and you can see it. Uh, we traveled with some police officers in different areas and they were pointing people out saying, he's unmet, she's unmet. You know, it, we went into a town where there was an industry that had shut down and people began working in the meth industry and it essentially created jobs for people. But if you look at what the media says about meth, uh, you see the things that, that make it interesting and exciting and, and worrisome and frighten people. Uh, there's not a lot, you don't hear a lot about crack cocaine. It doesn't mean it's not being used. You start to hear more about heroin because that is becoming more and more of a problem. But you don't hear as much as you might if, in fact, we were just looking at the statistics. Uh, methamphetamine may not be as widespread, but it's a very frightening drug and somehow it's caught the popular attention, and it's gotten television shows of its own, it's gotten books of its own, so it's something that's interesting to people.
3: I think one of the questions we asked our respondents um, was whether or not they thought methamphetamine was unique. Um, and I would say 90% of our respondents looked at us not so much to say, I don't understand the question, but rather to say, which ridiculous story would you like to hear first? Um, you know, you know. By unique, do you mean when I, you know, pull up to the house after I've heard some, you know, neighborhood problems going on here, and you have several people up in the trees and fatigues with, you know, uh, they, with shouting about uh, black helicopters, uh, you know, surrounding them, uh, and that same story being repeated all over the, the United States, that. Uh, the, the, the destruction of the drug, and Henry was right, that there's some people we talked to who have been using for six, eight years and they still looked fine physically, although they clearly had all kinds of uh, neurological problems. Uh, the, in the main, what you found is significant destruction immediately. You know, these meth pictures you see online, I'm sure, where you have a, a beautiful young woman who's 22 years old and when she's 23, she already looks like she's 50 years old. There, there's something incredibly uh, toxic about the drug itself um, i think it's also you know just the the, the sort of uh... compare it to, to, to other drugs you, you simply don't have the same kind of of behavior going on let me give you an example in rural virginia we have a police uh... uh detective who said literally um, as she walked us through every piece of every the every seizure that she'd done in the state um, She'd say, look, I can pull somebody over in a car, and I can look them in the eyes, and I know whether they're using meth or whether they've recently used meth. I can look at them, know that, and then I can say to them, hey, I know you're using meth, and they're going to look at her and not deny it. And then she's going to say to them, I know you have a meth lab at home, and they're not going to deny it. And then she's going to say, you're going to take me to the meth lab right, right now, and they do. I mean it's 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 bizarre not just the behavior, but think about it, it's not just like doing cocaine and I get high for fifteen or thirty minutes I can do a a gram of pretty pure product, and I can be up all day. I can be up all night, and if I keep on one-upping that and I keep on taking more and more, I can be up for two, three days on end, and you can understand the the sort of delusional behavior that will then proceed. And beyond that, which you don't find with marijuana or many of these other drugs, you now have kids in the home, right? And they're supposed to be, you know, getting their Fruit Loops, but next to the Fruit Loops is the last bag of, of methamphetamine they're making up, and next to that is the bottle that they made their last batch with, you know, this, it, the, the devastation not just on the body, but on reality and about, you know, the fact that you need to, you need to be a parent and, and all these types of things goes out the window.
2: We found people who say to us that they and their kids use meth together because it makes them feel closer.
1: Wow. Um, well, on that uh, very depressing <laughs> note, I think we'll, we'll call it a day. Uh, I want to thank you both again for speaking to me on this. Uh, it was a really interesting conversation, and thank you for your time.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Take care.
0: That's all for this week. Again, if you like what you heard here head over to context.org to keep up with the context podcast and to check out the new issue of context. It's fantastic. We'll be back soon with more office hours. Thank you for your support.